0: Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 2, The Children of Tyre. We begin with a story. A story of treachery, political intrigue, and a desperate escape. On a crisp Levantine night in 825 BC, a small fleet of handsome galleys glides out of the Tyrian Harbor. The grunting of the oarsmen is heard every few seconds while they pull the ships reluctantly away from her mother city, helped along by a light wind that ripples their sails. On one ship, there is a crowd of people on the deck. They wear robes of rich purple and fine gold jewelry and stand in somber silence, watching their beloved city, with its towering buildings shimmering with a thousand pricks of light, drift off into the distance. Behind them, Guarded by soldiers and attendants is a woman, the most luxuriously dressed of them all. She too is looking out at the distance, but her gaze is resolute, not anguished, and she isn't looking behind her at her city, but rather ahead, into the unknown. Everyone, I'd like to introduce you to Alyssa, the rightful queen of Tyre. Now why is Alyssa setting a course for anywhere but Tyre? Why is she forsaking her mother's city, you might ask? You see, her brother, King Pygmalion, has cheated her out of her birthright, the role that she has been preparing for her entire life. Several years before this momentous night, their father, the previous king of Tyre named Matan, had died. It was well known that he had wished for both of his children to rule Tyre with equal authority. This, much to the chagrin of Alyssa, did not happen. Pygmalion had plotted with the court of Tyre, and with their backing managed to wrest sole control of the city. Alyssa was married off to her uncle, Akerbus. Weird, I know, but weirdness seems to be the only constant in the ancient world. Now, despite her usurpation by her brother, she was still a force to be reckoned with. In part because her new husband was a high priest of Melkart, which, as we know from the last episode, was a pretty big deal in Tyre. And during his tenure in this exalted position, Akerbus was rumored to have made a fortune that was hidden somewhere in his estate. So Alyssa was still at the top of the political food chain, even if it wasn't how she imagined getting there. But all that changed when Pygmalion, no doubt insecure about his hold on power, assassinated Akerbus for his wealth. Stripped of her husband, her pride, and her influence, it was time for Alyssa to do something plotting of her own. After her husband's funeral, she agreed to abandon his estate and move back into the royal palace under the watchful eye of Pygmalion. She claimed that she was too haunted by the thought of Acerbus' death to continue living alone in his house. Pygmalion was thrilled at this concession. It played right into his plan to use his authority as king to claim Acerbus' gold for himself, so he naturally accepted He sent some courtiers and attendants to help Alyssa move her and Acarabas' possessions into her new home, as well as to say her last goodbyes. Alyssa, insisting she wanted to make a final gesture towards her late husband, gathered the attendants on some ships with all of his things and started to perform a lengthy ritual to Melkart. Suddenly, she ordered that several heavy sacks be thrown overboard. As they sunk into the open sea, she proclaimed that the wealth of a had been returned to him. The attendants started to panic. Did she just cast away all of that money? She confirmed to them that indeed she had, and not only that, Alyssa reminded them that Pygmalion would not take lightly to this foolish oversight on their part, that they would certainly be punished severely upon their return to court. She assured her mortified audience that she had already accepted her death at the hands of her brother and would gladly sail back to the harbor with them. They, on the other hand, had better start considering their options, which were either to join her in exile or to face brutal torture and execution by Pygmalion. Eventually, the anguished attendants agreed to flee with her and accompanied by her trusted royal guard and a selection of Tyrian nobles that had backed Alyssa in the succession crisis, and were disgusted by her brother's dishonorable and impious deeds, the Motley group set off that very night. In time, the fleet reached the island of Cyprus off the shores of modern-day Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon, which you'll recall from episode 1 was the location of the oldest Phoenician colonies and an important source of copper in their trade network. Alyssa was hoping to settle somewhere far away from Pygmalion, somewhere she could rule her own city and live the life she'd never had in the bonds of marriage. She and her party sought help at the Temple of Astarte. Remember, that's the wife of Melkart. See why I gave you all that context in the first episode? It really starts to help when we get into the mythology here. When she encountered the High Priest of Astarte, Alyssa explained her situation, how she had been conned out of her throne by her brother, who had then murdered her husband, a priest of Melkart no less, and forced her into exile. But Alyssa had a trick up her sleeve. Alyssa always had a trick up her sleeve. She had brought with her, smuggled out of her husband's quarters and onto her ship, the sacra, or the sacred instruments of Melkart, entrusted to only his most esteemed servants to conduct his rituals with. This was proof enough of her word for the high priest of Astarte, who vowed to join her if she would grant him and his future children the high priesthood of Astarte, complete with a grand temple for good measure, for the rest of time. She accepted his oath of loyalty and had him gather his fellow priests and eighty women of the temple. These women were sex workers whose role was integral to the worship of Astarte. Let's not forget that Astarte is an aspect of Ishtar, and Ishtar was often tied to sex, love, and fertility by her followers, and worshipped through such means as well. Now, if you still think that's a little weird, I'd like to remind you that the Greeks perhaps most famously at the Temple of Aphrodite in Corinth had a similar group of intellectual and artistic women who also happened to be sex workers, the Heteri. These 80 women of Astarte were obviously necessary for founding a suitable colony, you know, one that just wouldn't die out after a single generation. Now, there was one major problem that Alyssa would have to overcome if she was truly going to fulfill her destiny. Pygmalion had caught wind of his sister's escape to Cyprus and had sent part of the Tyrian fleet, which at this time was probably the best navy in this part of the world, to claim her life. When she saw the enemy ships approaching, she had these 80 priestesses of Astarte perform a ritual along the beach to ensure the blessing of their goddess in the founding of this new city. Pygmalion was advised by all his oracles, priests, and magi not to interfere with his sister's departure, lest he invoke the wrath of the gods. He would, and I'm quoting directly from one of the sources about this story here, quote, not escape with impunity if he interrupted the founding of a city that was to become the most prosperous in the world. Furious, Pygmalion had no choice but to let Alyssa's fleet escape, where he could never again do them any harm. Alyssa spent many years wandering the Mediterranean with her people, searching for the right place to found her city, and it is during this time that she was given another name, a pejorative name that mocked her struggles, though it is a name that we still know her by today, and that name was Dido, which means the wanderer. At long last, Alyssa and her fleet reached the North African coast, and in the year 814 BC, and let's remember she started this journey in 825, so that's a long time, on a large hill near the shoreline founded a new city simply titled Karth Hadasht, or, well, new city in Phoenician. To the Romans, this Latinized to Carthago, and to us, it is of course known as Carthage. But there was yet another problem for Elissa to face, and it came of the form of a nearby king, Ierbas of the Maxitani. The Maxitani were a Numidian kingdom, and the Numidians being an ancient people that inhabited what is now modern-day Algeria, Tunisia, and the western part of Libya. They fall under the umbrella term Berber, which describes the people indigenous to North Africa, west of Egypt, of course, who made up kingdoms and tribes like the Numidians, Libyans, and Nassimones, among others. These Maxitani had been a regional power for quite some time. They knew how to fight in the arid terrain and were not about to let a bunch of Carthaginian upstarts expand into their territory with impunity. Ierbus approached the new queen and, as a gift, offered her a single oxhide. Under his watch, he explained, the city of Carthage could only build within the boundaries of the hide when it was laid out upon the earth. Otherwise, Alyssa would risk war with the Maxitani. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure an oxhide isn't enough room to build a city on, unless it's made out of, like, Legos or something, but I don't think Alyssa had any of those lying around. Nevertheless, she may, remained unfazed and amicable in the face of Yerbus's impossible demands, and when he left, she started to plan the construction of her city, like it was business as usual. Her subjects must have looked at her with incredulity, that is, until she explained to them her master stroke, the trick that she is most famous for. Alyssa ordered the hide to be cut down into the thinnest strips possible, and in the perimeter of these strips was a hill known as the Bursa, which would remain the most important district of Carthage until its eventual destruction. Think of it as the Carthaginian version of the Capitoline Hill, where the Roman Forum was located. When Eerbus, smug with himself over his clever ruse, returned to check on the construction of the city, he was shocked and enraged to discover that Carthage was becoming an actual city, rather than just remaining in an ox hide in the rocky sand. Even he could not deny, though, that Alyssa had kept her word. For now, there was nothing to be done. But wait, I mean, could these foreigners really expect to find any success surrounded by Berber enemies? But, unfortunately for Eerbus, Carthage was not, in fact, surrounded by enemies. Under Alyssa's rule, Carthage prospered in its first years, ballooning in size with the help of Akerbus's wealth. Did I mention that those sacks that she threw into the ocean way back then to trick all the attendants into coming with her were actually just full of sand and that she really kept all of Acherbis' wealth because, well, they were, and she did. This is Alyssa we're talking about here. The other enormous boon to Carthage was just the assistance of the locals, Maxitani excluded. Utica, which was on the coast to the north of Carthage, had been a Tyrian colony for hundreds of years by this time, we mentioned it in episode 1 actually, and was glad to give generously to Carthage. Additionally, many Libyan kingdoms in the area established trade deals with the young city, hoping to share in its splendor. And to top it all off, it doesn't hurt when you have both Melkart and Astarte on your side, right? To show their appreciation, Carthage even sent an annual tithe, or religious payment, to the temple of Melkart in Tyre, which I'm sure must have warmed the Tyrians up to their colony after Pygmalion's death. This equilibrium continued for some time until Eerbus, who could no longer sit back and wait for the Carthaginians to grow into a rival power, began shaking things up. So the king of the Maxitani requested an audience with the noblemen of Carthage, and told the delegation on no uncertain terms that if Elissa did not marry him, which would effectively bring her city under his dominion, you know, go patriarchy, he would prepare to make war. The Carthaginian delegation returned to Alyssa, hesitant to share their grave news, but she did manage to coerce it out of them eventually. Upon learning the truth, she reviewed her options with her people, who reminded her that if she didn't accept this marriage, they would all perish. It was with firm conviction that Alyssa decided her own fate. Instead of choosing subjugation for either herself or the Carthaginians, she lit a funeral pyre and, in front of the entire city, stepped onto it and fell on her sword in an act of self-immolation. With Alyssa's death, Yerbus could no longer have his marriage, and Carthage was further protected by her sacrifice. She went above and beyond the duties of a public servant and would be remembered as a hero of Carthage for time immemorial. Now, that is a killer story, right? I mean, you have all these trials and tribulations to work with. Her going to Cyprus, the temple women, the journey to Africa, her schemes, and her noble death. All of those are great, memorable plot points. You could take all of those and add some dramatic details, and you'd have the recipe for some sort of Count of Monte Cristo esque adventure novel. Or, this would probably be the more popular choice in this day and age, a blockbuster movie. Personally, I'd like to give it a title like the Elysee or the Eliod just to add some extra flair, some ethos too, in case any of you prospective uh, screenwriters out there want to cut me in. It really does remind me of something out of the Odyssey, though, and it's a shame that Alyssa's story really isn't more well-known. But here's the thing. As much as it pains me to say it, a good chunk of that whole story is unreliable. And I'm not talking unreliable in terms of historical inaccuracy here. I mean, that's just a given. Of course, it's not going to be uh, exactly what happened down to the last detail, right? And no one expects it to be. It's oral tradition. You know, it's legend. It's literature. It's supposed to inspire us, and in doing so, to tell us about the culture of the society it's a product of. Here's where we run into the unreliable part, though. This story, with all its little intricacies is very obviously not a product of Punic culture. It's a product of Greco-Roman culture. Now you can see that in the sources that the Alyssa legend comes from. Spoiler alert, they're all Greco-Roman. And not only that, it's a complete wild goose chase trying to glean any specifics from these accounts. I mean, let me give you an example. The first historian to actually mention Alyssa is this Sicilian Greek guy called Timaeus, who was writing in the 350s BC. Now, if you're doing the math, that means he's writing five centuries after the fact, and he doesn't even give us that much to go on in the first place. Instead, the most detailed account of Alyssa's life was written by a Roman, Pompeius Trogus, who was writing hundreds of years after Timaeus at the turn of the millennia. But it doesn't stop there. We don't even have Trogus's original history. We just get them from another Roman historian named Justin, who wrote an epitome, basically a summary of his work. And Justin lived in the time of Augustus, which, for those of you who aren't big fans of Roman history, is the early to mid-first century AD. And that's just a complete mess, isn't it? No wonder there aren't more histories written on the Carthaginians. I mean, the names of the story, you know, Alyssa, Pygmalion, Akerbos, those are all Greek versions of the Phoenician names Elishat, Pumayatun, and Zakarbaal. So not only do we have this really garbled, patchwork version that we have to work to piece together, it's full of Greek and Roman stereotypes of Punic culture. See, the Romans of the Republican period had this phrase that they loved to throw around in their conversations and records, and that phrase was Punic faith. Punic faith is basically the opposite of good faith, so it's trickery, breaking oaths, double-crossing, that kind of thing. The Romans tried to fit all Carthaginians into this archetype of scheming, greedy merchants who only care about making money. A lot of this comes from years of geopolitical rivalry between Rome and Carthage that we'll get into later, as well as the commercial traditions of the Phoenician people, and it manifests all over Greco-Roman portrayals of the Carthaginians, which, unfortunately, is pretty much all we have. So, for example... As much as I love all the clever little moves that Alyssa makes in Justin's account of the founding of Carthage, most of those, especially the whole oxide thing, are really just there to slander the Carthaginians, you know, oh look, they can't even found their own city without conning their way into some land, etc, etc. And we actually do have some pretty strong evidence for that oxide thing being made up. That's because the word bursa in Greek translates to hide or animal skin and our sources on the Alyssa story claim that that's where the name of the Carthaginian bursa, uh, the most important hill of the city, remember, actually comes from. Now in reality, the word bursa was probably just a Phoenician word for citadel or stronghold, so we can chalk that last part of the story with the oxide up to an explanation of the connection between the similar names. There's also the detail of the priestesses of Astarte being taken to bear the children of the city, which might seem familiar to any Roman history buffs out there. And this is because it's probably an allusion to the rape of the Sabine women, which is part of the Roman origin story. On top of all these misrepresentations and backhanded insults from the versions we have from Trochus and Timaeus is the most famous use of Alyssa in the Western canon. For those of you who guessed we might be talking about this, yes. I am of course referring to her role in Virgil's epic, the Aeneid. Now, in case you don't know who or what I'm talking about, or maybe you have a vague idea but you need a refresher, that's okay. Virgil was a Roman poet who was commissioned by Augustus, remember that's the first emperor of the Roman Empire, to write a heroic epic about the foundation of Rome. The Aeneid takes place right after the Iliad and recounts the struggles of its titular character Aeneas, who must escape his home city of Troy after it has been sacked by the Greeks and find a new home. Among his descendants, according to tradition, were the brothers who built Rome on the banks of the Tiber, Romulus and Remus. Among his many adventures at sea was Aeneas's famous landing at Carthage, where Alyssa, called Dido by Virgil desperately falls in love with him. Aeneas promises to stay with her, but he eventually decides that his duty to his people is more important than the relationship, and he abruptly leaves Dido in search of his destiny. Virgil has a devastating, yet beautifully written passage, where an inconsolable Dido, instead of sacrificing herself to save her people, like the legend that we get from Justin, commits suicide by funeral pyre in her heartbreak. And keep in mind, the passage I'm going to be reading uh, has a depiction of suicide in it, so if that's something that's triggering to you, feel free to skip ahead. Alright, without further ado. Writes Virgil, Quote, But Dido, desperate, beside herself with awful undertakings, Eyes bloodshot and rolling, And her quivering cheeks, flecked with stains and pale with coming death, Now bursts across the inner courtyards of her palace. She mounts in madness that high pyre, Unsheaths the dardan sword, A gift not sought for such an end. And when she saw the Trojans' clothes and her familiar bed, She checked her thought in tears a little, Lay upon the couch and spoke her final words, O relics, dear while fate and God allowed, Receive my spirit and free me from these cares, For I have lived and journeyed through the course assigned by fortune, And now my shade will pass illustrious beneath the earth i have built a handsome city have seen my walls rise up avenged a husband one satisfaction from a hostile brother oh fortunate too fortunate if only the ships of troy had never touched our coasts she spoke and pressed her face into the couch i shall die unavenged but i shall die she says thus thus i gladly go below to shadow May the savage garden drink with his own eyes this fire from the deep and take with him the omen of my death. Then Dido's words were done, and her companions could see her fallen on the sword, the blade is foaming with her blood, her hands are bloodstained, now clamor rises to the high rooftop. Now rumor riots through the startled city, the lamentations, keening, shrieks of women sound through the houses, heavens echo mighty waitings. Even as if an enemy were entering the stages, with all of Carthage or ancient Tyre in ruins, and angry fires rolling across the homes of men and gods. And Anna heard, appalled and breathless, she runs anxious through the crowd, her nails wounding her face, her fists, her breasts, she calls the dying Dido by name. And was it then, for this, my sister? Did you plan this fraud for me? Was this the meeting waiting for me? When the pyre, the flames, the altar were prepared, what shall I now deserted first lament?" End quote. That is passionate, tragic, cathartic stuff. It gets me every time. You know, Virgil it really is one of the greats. And I know this is going a bit off topic, but to me, this is a perfect example of how the impact of art really is timeless. A lot of people, myself included, tend to look at something really old you know, whether it be a Greek play or Hindu Veda or even just a small Neolithic sculpture and brush it aside because it's hard to understand from our cultural perspective. But if you really take the time to look at something critically in its own context, it's totally worth it. There's meaning to be derived from any piece of art. And again, I'm going to put a brief content warning here. Uh, For the next couple of minutes or so, I'm going to be bringing up suicide and the effects it has, so again, if that's something that's triggering you, go ahead and skip ahead, no judgment. Now, that passage from the Aeneid is about some heavy stuff. I mean, first you have heartbreak. That's pretty much a universal theme in literature, right? And in addition to that, Virgil is dealing with suicide and its ramifications here. Take the end passage, for example, when you have Dido's sister, uh, Anna, raging through the crowd, both grief-stricken and furious at her sister. I mean, to this day, that's a common feeling for folks whose loved ones have committed suicide to express. You can feel this pain in those words even though they were written by someone thousands of years ago. And frankly, Virgil handled it better in the Aeneid than anyone did in 13 Reasons Why. Oh, and by the way, in case you were wondering, the music I was playing in the background is actually the same scene but from the opera Dido and Aeneas by Henry Purcell, which is based off this part of the Aeneid. So overall, it should be pretty clear to you how the myth of Alyssa has changed so much over the years, so much so that we don't even call her by her proper name anymore. It might be surprising, but despite all of this abundant bias, the Alyssa story remains important to understanding the Carthaginians, and that's because all of our sources agree on one major thing that the Carthaginians used the legend of Alyssa as an origin story of their city, their people. It was at the center of their oral tradition. Coins have been found with her face on them, like some ancient version of Abe Lincoln. We're pretty sure, even, that Pygmalion, at least, is probably a real historical figure. The Matan Pygmalion Inheritance Debacle, in particular, is listed in the Annals of Tyre, which we sadly only have fragments of from old historians who use them as a source, though we do actually have a necklace that some experts believe belonged to a soldier who served during his reign. Now take all this with a grain of salt, because out of a small pool of professionals that research the Carthaginians and Phoenicians, many are divided on the extent to which we should take Alyssa into consideration when speculating the infancy of Carthage. So why then did I just give you all of those accounts? I mean, if it isn't even the full Carthaginian story, what's the point of knowing about it? Well, for one, even with all their misrepresentations of Alyssa, all their talk of Punic faith, the stories of this beguiling queen that have come down to us are still captivating, inspirational, and sometimes tragic. They touch at the soul. You see, I had to give you a story to get the message across that at some point in the recesses of history, there was another story out there, the Punic story and the Punic story, wreathed in cultural significance, must have been more magnificent than our second-hand, garbled version could ever hope to be. It's my hope to bring the Carthaginians to life in a way that they never are, but like all other peoples, deserve. And to do that, I have to inject the drama of a human experience in my depiction of them, because history would really be incomplete without it. So for the rest of the season, while I'll definitely be covering all the archaeological and historical evidence, which is mainly what I have in front of me, I'll also do my due diligence to incorporate the exciting elements where I can. The first episode had to be a little bit fast-paced, given the fact that we were taking a cursory look at 2,000 years of Phoenician history, but from now on, I promise, the devil is in the details. It's time we take a break from Carthage proper, For the time being, just to examine the world that they found themselves in, the Punic Mediterranean. Now, we last left the Phoenicians during the Golden Age of Tyre, specifically at the beginning of the 800s BC. And remember, BC goes backwards, so we're just leaving the 900s. But, as I have just gone over, Carthage was founded in 814 BC, a date which archaeological evidence actually supports, by the way. So what exactly happened in the intervening decades? Well, it turns out that during this time, the Golden Age of Tyre was slowly but surely decomposing. It started with invasions from Assyria. Sometime in the 870s or 860s BC, the king of Assyria, Ashur-Nasirpal II, led a military campaign against the many cities of Canaan, including the Phoenician kingdoms. His attempted siege of Tyre was not enough to storm the city, although after coming to terms with Ithobaal, the king of Tyre at the time, he was still able to subject them to heavy tribute. Now up until the Assyrian invasion, Ethobaal had been overseeing the greatest extent of Tyrian prosperity, like some Phoenician version of the Roman emperor Antoninus Pius, but this sort of threw a wrench in things. To make up for the hefty expenditures the state naturally turned to, developing its colonies and sending as much trade output back to Tyre as possible in the form of wealth. Because of these new social and economic trends, we start to see a rapid increase in new Phoenician settlements and the growth of already existing ones during this time. Realistically, Carthage was probably just swept up in this movement, but there was another settlement that blossomed out of the demands from back east as well. That city, which I actually neglected to mention last episode, even though it was founded around the same time as Cateon, Utica, and Lyxis, is Gadiz. Gadiz was a small colony on the coast of modern-day Spain, just past where the Straits of Gibraltar meet the Atlantic Ocean. Settled around 1100 BC, it really wasn't very noteworthy for a couple hundred years, which is why I didn't bring it up before, but by this time, Gadiz had become the beacon of Phoenician culture outside Canaan itself. Its seemingly infinite silver mines brought in merchants from all over the Mediterranean, so much that it actually replaced Lyxis as the primary source of silver for Tyre. And of course, with plenty of merchants comes plenty of money. Now we have records for some of the stuff that was built in Gadiz, and it honestly rivals Tyre in its magnificence. Take the Temple of Melkart, for example. The Temple of Melkart in Tyre was certainly impressive. I don't know if I actually included this in the last episode or not, but the entrance to Hiram's temple had two pillars, one made of solid gold and the other of emerald so bright that they actually shone at night. The temple at Gediz, though, had a detailed sculpture of an olive tree, which was an important symbol in the cult of Melkart that was made out of pure gold. I'm going to say this one more time. Pure Gold. I mean, most of us have seen gold rings or maybe a necklace if we're lucky, right? But imagine an object made of gold that's taller than you. Think about the skill it takes to sculpt something as detailed as a tree. And oh yeah, that sculpture was also inlaid with emeralds, by the way, so no big deal. I mean, I'm sorry, I just can't get over that, you know, it must have looked incredible. And we always go on and on about how the Greeks were the best artists of antiquity. And they certainly were brilliant athletes, don't get me wrong, but they weren't the only ones. Now, you might be thinking, if Gadiz has a temple of Melkart, then surely other colonies have similar institutions, don't they? And yes, you're quite right. Religion was hugely important to the cohesion of these colonies and the influence that Tyre had over them. I mean, without influence over your colonies, what's even the point of having them, right? While there's some evidence of magistrates from Tyre having roles in colonial government, the largest source of the wealth that Tyre accrued from her Mediterranean children, aside from trade, was in the form of tithe, which, remember, is a fancy word for religious tribute, and this was usually in the name of Melkart. I think it's safe to say that Tyre continued to use Melkart like good old King Hiram had, like some sort of Wizard of Oz while they played a careful political game behind the curtain. From the 800s BC and onwards, cultural and religious practices of the Punic Diaspora started manifesting in other forms besides the worship of Melkart. One of archaeologists' favorite ways to identify Punic settlements is the infamous Tophet cult. Now, if any of you know what a Tophet is, you've probably heard of it in the Hebrew Bible, where it has very negative connotations. It's sometimes even synonymous with hell. In reality, a Tophet is just a religious burial ground used commonly in Canaanite religions. There have obviously been tophets excavated all over Phoenicia, but things really got interesting when archaeologists found them in places like Sardinia, Malta, Spain, and North Africa as well. The analysis of tophets gives us an entirely unique way to track the spread of Phoenician colonization. It also allows us to see the birth of an individual settlement, What happens is that the area along a Phoenician trade route gets used frequently as either a resting place, a good area to forage, or maybe just a watering hole. Eventually, it becomes ingrained in the memories of sailors and travelers, and it turns into a trading post. Over time, settlers arrive and establish permanent residency, which of course requires agriculture. And with Phoenicians living there and bringing their culture and religious rituals with them, they also die there and leave behind Tophets. And we can even measure the size of a colony by the size of its Tophet. Carthage, for example, had a sizable one that surrounded the oldest inhabited part of the city. Now there is one other thing with respect to Tophets that I haven't introduced yet, although I need to, because it's going to play a large role in Carthage's later history and the propaganda that is piled against them, in the coming centuries. And that is the cultural practice of child sacrifice. Now, when I say that the Tophets were places of burial and religious ritual, I wasn't lying. It's just that the vast majority of remains found at these sites are those of children and animals. Not only that, there is also overwhelming textual corroboration between Greek sources that the Carthaginians engaged in child sacrifice, sometimes en masse. Now, modern tools like carbon and bone dating allow us to look at the evolution of this grisly phenomenon. And it turns out that in the earliest parts of the Tofits, the children usually died of natural causes like birth defects, sickness, or being stillborn. So it appears that Tofits began as a place to bury children who simply could not survive the harsh conditions of the ancient world, and to sacrifice either them or an animal rather than a healthy child. We can see the religious element come into play with these burials, as evidence points to some children being anointed in oils or buried with gifts. But this begins to change the further we progress in Carthaginian history, as we shall see. The Greek and Roman sources were definitely correct to some extent in their claims of live child sacrifice, because the later Tophet remains began to show signs of healthier or more fully developed children and infants being buried. Still, it isn't like this practice occurred wantonly. It seems that child sacrifice took place in times of turmoil and emergency, particularly in Carthage's case, and it wasn't common to the extent that the ancient historians claim it was. We'll spend a good deal of time investigating these rituals and the reasons for them as they become more relevant to our story, but just keep this in the back of your mind for now. So, we finally have a solid understanding of the greater Punic world that Carthage was born into, and now it's time to talk about Carthage itself. We'll start by looking at how it reacted to the shifting tides of that world. Now, I mentioned earlier that Carthage was probably part of this attempt by Tyre to expand their colonial outreach to the west. While earlier colonies like Lyxis, Citeon, Gadiz, and Utica expanded in a sort of multi-century slow burn, Carthage was consciously cultivated, most likely because of its promising location. You see, Carthage was conveniently located along the coast of North Africa, so it was an excellent stopping point for ships going from the far western colonies for silver, All the way back to the Levant. But this wasn't the only locational advantage Carthage had. It was also close by to the trade hubs of the Tyrrhenian Sea, islands like Corsica, Sardinia, Malta, Sicily, and moreover, the whole coast of western Italy. Now, the access to additional trade partners was part of what made Carthage stand out from its fellow colonies. It meant that it wasn't completely dependent on the exchange of silver, copper, and tin between east and west. In its earliest years, Carthage was already capitalizing on these opportunities. Carthage became plugged into this thriving little bubble that included the Etruscans, the Latin and Italian city-states, the early Greek settlers in southern Italy, the Phoenician colonies in Sicily, and the Nuragic civilization native to Sardinia. Foodstuffs like grains, beans, fruit wine, olive oil, garum, which was a pungent mediterranean condiment made from aged anchovies, and even pottery from as far as greece circulated between these regional powers, and consequently many of these goods found their way into Carthage as well. These products weren't just an added bonus though, they were necessary for the city's very survival. Carthage really didn't have direct access to the land outside the city at this time, and Agriculture was severely limited as a result. This was in part due to the circumspect relations with many of the Libyan kingdoms and tribes that encircled them. They would happily trade with the Libyans and the Numidians, but they were in no way strong enough to risk hostilities just yet. So, with the exception of subsistence hunting and animal husbandry, many of their food had to be imported from the Tyrrhenian trade route. Sicily, in particular, was a prized breadbasket, and really... It's no wonder that it was primarily here where Carthaginian interests lay. This instant commercial success, along with some support from neighbors like Utica and the Libyan peoples, meant that the city grew rapidly in its early years, just like the Alyssa story claims it did. Archaeological evidence shows that the first inhabited area was on the lower part of the Brusa facing the sea, and this was probably because there was a freshwater spring conveniently located nearby. Right from the start, the city, built from brick by the way, was well planned with a gridded street layout, markets and squares and large factories and workshops for metalworking and other trades. There were also a handful of production centers for purple dye, though on a smaller scale than the ones from Tyre that we've already covered. The Tophet, of course, surrounded the whole area. This, as Richard Miles writes, quote, certainly suggests that Carthage was set up as a colonial settlement and not just a trading post. These settlers really didn't mess around. By the 700s BC, the population of Carthage was about 30,000, which sounds underwhelming until you consider the fact that very few Phoenician colonies were actually inhabited by more than 1,000 people. Trade with Egypt, the Levant, the Libyans, and the rest of the Mediterranean was flourishing, and the people of all these ethnic backgrounds had come into the city seeking their fortunes. The genetic makeup of the residents of Carthage reflects this diversity. Many of the original Phoenician settlers had intermarried with the local population and immigrant populations, and made up a class of merchants, artisans, and laborers who were the majority of the city. This isn't to say that Carthage didn't remember its Phoenician roots, however. At the very highest rungs of society were the elite nobles who kept to themselves and took pride in their Tyrian origins. This group was the precursor to the Carthaginian senate. They elected a ruler from amongst their rank to govern Carthage. The Greeks mistook this ruler as a king and thought that Carthage began as a monarchy, much like its mother city, but it's safer to say that the government of Carthage at this time was more similar to a very, very exclusive merchant republic. One caveat here is that in the first hundred years or so since the city's foundation, the king of Tyre had a lot of influence on who actually became the governor of Carthage, as the city was still technically under their nominal control. Then, in 730 BC, Something happened that changed the dynamic between the Punic colonies and their mother cities forever. A great Assyrian army, led by Tiglath-Pileser III, in a hugely ambitious campaign that could honestly be a miniseries all on its own, invaded the lands of Phoenicia. This time, he had more luck than the kings before him, and after some initial protests, the city of Tyre finally submitted to the Assyrian Empire. In a move that might surprise you if you know anything about the Assyrians and their foreign policy, Tiglath-Pileser does not appear to have sacked and annexed Tyre. Now, if you aren't so familiar with the Assyrians, go take a look at some of their palace art, which depicts and boasts about desecrating the gods, flaying, which is peeling someone's skin off, and committing atrocious sexual violence against their enemies, and the treatment of Tyre will probably start to look like downright clemency to you. Now, this is probably because Tiglath-Pileser knew that there was more to be gained by letting Tyre keep generating income over time, as he did force the city to pay an enormous war indemnity of 150 gold talents, and from here on out, until the Neo-Babylonians come in later in our story, Assyrian agents were posted in the Tyrian harbor, overseeing all transactions and outright forbidding any trade with Egypt. This is at the end of the golden age of Tyre. If not in name, then definitely in its effect on their influence. Although Carthage would still send tithe to its mother city and would have a permanent delegation there that would often help celebrate the Idrisis of Melkart, they were no longer bound by the political whims of their mother city. They continued their lucrative trade deal with Egypt, and the ruling class as well as the leaders they elected began to exert their own authority over the city. But with this new independence came new challenges. The population continued to increase rapidly over the decades, and eventually the limited hinterlands of Carthage, even with all the food they were importing from the Tyrrhenian trade network, was not enough to sustain its people. So, join me next time as we look at the growing pains of Carthage, as well as the beginnings of their empire, on the next episode of The Wonders of History.